What decisions does God regret making? What, what events might transpire in history that would cause the creator and active manager of the universe to look upon and think, I wish I would have taken a different course of action. I mean, the question itself is a bit troubling. And as I can see some of your, the looks on your faces, perhaps even thinking that I'm a heretic. I, I didn't say regret, it's in our text this morning, but indeed we come across statements like in our passage that God regrets something and it definitely brings some theological tension. How is it that God would regret? But I would argue that beyond the theological tension, it, it brings up some far more practical concerns that if God would regret things like making Saul king, what else might he regret? Would he regret us? Might he regret saving us once he finds out really how, I mean, these questions uh, are, are troubling, but they're not the only troubling things in our passage. In fact, there's a number of difficulties in our text this morning. We read this intro that seems to paint Saul and then with a brush of approval, seems like his life and his accomplishments were great. And by the end of the passage, he's being condemned and the kingdom is being taken away from him. We find in our passage this morning, what some critics of the Bible have de uh, declared to be divine ethnic cleansing. Certainly troubling words when we see this idea of the Amalekites being devoted to destruction. We find, as we have mentioned, that twice in our passage that God regrets. And at the center of the passage, it says that God is incapable of regret. A number of difficulties in our passage for this morning. So I do thank Pastor Purcell for assigning this to me. And we might find out soon enough if he's prone to regret. But we, we do come to a, a passage like this uh, in need of God's spirit as we pray and we'll uh, continue to rely upon his spirit as we uh, open his word this morning. And I want to consider this text uh, through three headings. The first is total destruction. The second is partial obedience. And then finally, I want to consider a God who regrets. Well, as we get to the beginning of chapter 15, we find this directive from Yahweh to Saul through by way of the prophet Samuel to strike and devote to destruction the Amalekites. But, but before we get there, we, we find this interesting insertion at the end of chapter 14. If you'll recall, the last few chapters have been showing Saul's demise, his poor decisions, uh, decisions that have implicated his own son, as we saw last week. And as we get to chapter 15, which we read this morning, we find that the kingdom really is taken away from Saul because of his wickedness and obedience. But right in the middle of these accounts, we find this paragraph that seems to shine a pretty positive light on King Saul. We're told that he fought valiantly all his life, that he delivered Israel over and over again on the battlefield. We hear that he has sons and daughters, that, he, that is, he has this potential to pass on his kingdom to the next generation. 
we find that in his constant warring that he has developed this enormous army, which is quite impressive when we think back to the size of Israel's army just a few chapters ago and their, their lack of, of weaponry. The fact that Saul has developed this huge army is quite something. I mean, this text at the end of chapter 14 seems to approve of Saul, but but there's an interesting piece of information that this introduction gives us that would cause us to question. And and I would argue really sets up chapter 15. As great as Saul may have looked from the outside, as successful as he was in battle, as large as his army and family had become, the text tells us that there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. That is to say, unlike what God has promised, Saul never found rest from his enemies. And closely connected, there's something that's missing from this brief biography. When we find biographies like this of kings, of good kings in the Bible, we find statements that say, and God was with them or they walked with the Lord. That's completely absent from this biography at the end of chapter 14. And we find out why that is as we move into chapter 15, as we see Saul's demise. So as we move into chapter 15, let's set up the scene a little bit. Samuel the prophet once again comes to Saul to speak on behalf of the Lord. The Lord for several chapters in the case of Saul has been silent and now he's going to speak. And we're gonna find it's not words that Saul is overly interested in hearing. But Samuel says this, it says, it was I that the Lord sent to anoint you as king over his people. You didn't choose this on your own. God declared it. So it's time to listen to Yahweh. It's time to listen to the Lord of hosts, Samuel says. That is to say the commander of of heavenly armies has called for your attention. And this is the order that the Lord gives. Go and strike Amalek. And devote to destruction all that they have, man, woman, child, infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, all of a sudden we we get to one of these passages in the Old Testament that is uncomfortable for, for many. As we said in our introduction, some have said that this is divine ethnic cleansing at work. Well, is, is that what's going on here? Well, let's consider the background a little bit. The passage says that the Lord has noted, or or quite literally, I have remembered what Amalek did to Israel. Now, if we look back in Israel's history, we find that Amalek had come and attacked Israel uh, as they were uh, leaving Egypt. And particularly, they attacked those who were lagging behind. That is likely women and children that that uh, this, this, this city had come and attacked. And beyond women and children, we are told that the Amalekites cut the tail off of Israel, which is kind of an interesting phrase, but Jewish commentators suggest that the Amalekites were mocking uh, the sign of circumcision and essentially finishing the job. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But the text is showing us that this is a truly evil people attacking women and children, mocking not only Israel, but their God of promise. And it says that God has remembered that. You'll maybe remember the battle uh, scene that we find in Exodus. 
uh, where uh, Israel is fighting against the Amalekites. And whenever Moses would have his arms up in the air, Israel would, uh, would make progress in battle. And when his arms would drop, the Amalekites would make progress. So, uh, um, so we find this, this, this scene uh, of, of Moses arms being held up by Aaron and her to assist him and Israel wins this battle. But after that, we find a promise from God that says, because of what, Amal- uh, what Amalek has done, I will blot them out of the memory of the universe. No one under heaven will remember this nation when I'm done with them because of the evils that they have committed. God is really serious about it. So serious, he calls the people to write this promise down so that future generations will hear about it. And and so we find this in both Numbers and Deuteronomy, that part of Israel's rest in the promised land will be defeat from this people. This people really does show themselves as uh, a picture of evil in God's land that must be done away with. So what we find here is not so much a call for ethnic cleansing, but as one commentator notes is is ethical cleansing. This really is holy war. God is calling upon his people to rid the land of that which is unholy. In fact, he'll call these people sinners. The only time this word is used in reference to people in all of Samuel. And the Amalekites are called sinners and representing unholiness that needs to be taken care of. True holy war, which is the reason why Israel is to take no plunder. Everything is to be devoted as a sacrifice of destruction unto God. Now, to be very clear, this is not uh, an application point for us, at least directly, to take on the sword and to do this kind of work. Is there a place for holy war now? Well, yes, uh, but we find in Ephesians that for us, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, we, we take up the sword, but we take on the sword of the spirit. We, we equip ourselves with the full armor of God. But that isn't to say that holy war is done away with forever. I mean, God in Christ will come on that last day and he will come in judgment. And we find the promise that he will take out all that opposes him and his people, all who seek to destroy that which is good. In holy war and passages like ours this morning is really a picture of final judgment of God coming and cleansing his land. And then there's a great warning to be heeded here that if you aren't part of God's project, it will be to your demise. And because this is holy war, God's call to Saul is to bring about complete and utter destruction because it is the only way that God's people will find rest from their enemies. It's certainly not a warm and fuzzy reality, but it is a good one, even though we might be uncomfortable with it. We all recognize that the realities of sin and death that are around us each day need more than warm and fuzzy. Uh, That something profound needs to take place in order for this world to be made as it should be. And we're seeing a picture of that here in the Old Testament. And a stark picture it is. It tells us God's commitment to holiness. 
his hatred for all that is unholy. Well, if, if first in our text, we find God's call to devote all of Amalek to total destruction. Next, we find that Saul is satisfied with partial obedience. So Saul, in response to the word of the Lord, musters this now enormous army of Israel, and he heads to the city of Amalek to prepare for battle. Uh, but before doing so, he warns the Kenites to, to, to get out of Dodge. Now, now, we don't know a whole lot about the Kenites other than they are descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And, and apparently, at the same time that the Amalekites did evil to God's people, it shows us that, that, is, or that uh, this, this nation, the Kenites, had, had shown them kindness. So, so they are set free, so to speak. Once the Kenites get out of the picture, Saul and his troops carry out a decisive victory over the Amalekites. So far, so good. But we, in short order, come to find out that, that Saul has not devoted to complete destruction. In fact, he's captured and spared King Agag along with the best of their livestock. Now, in any normal battle, this would be okay. In fact, it would be advantageous to take plunder that would benefit you. But, but keep in mind, we're talking about holy war here. We're talking about cleansing. So God's call is for complete and utter destruction. We don't want to leave anyone thinking that this is normal battle where winners get the plunder. No, no everything is devoted to God and that is his call. And so in response, the Lord comes to Samuel the prophet and lets him know what he needs to say to Saul because of his disobedience. And so after a sleepless night, Samuel gets up early in the morning and he heads out to see Saul. Uh, ironically, he can't find him right away uh, because Saul is busy building himself a monument. Uh, maybe a monument that would be his sign of vindication before God. You know, I've done it right now. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. Ironic what that monument would go on to be a picture of. So he's building this monument because of his great victory, because he has listened to the voice of the Lord. But once Samuel finally tracks down Saul, we find him in Gilgal, this place at the border of the Holy Land, the, the same place where Saul was anointed king. And Saul sees Samuel and, and the text paints this picture that, that Saul seems to skip up to Samuel and, and glee, pretty proud of himself and his new monument. And he says, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the word of the Lord. There's this uh, video going around online of this little girl named Madison. I'm guessing she's three or four years old. And the video is her dad asking, hey, did you eat a cookie? And Madison says, no. Problem is Madison has chocolate all over her face. And that's a little bit of the picture that we're seeing here with Saul. Samuel responds to Saul, oh, so you listened to the Lord's voice, did you? And the Hebrew wordplay here is striking. He says, so why do I hear the voice of sheep in my ears? What is that voice of oxen that I hear? If you listen to God's voice, why do I hear the voice of livestock? Saul seems perplexed by Samuel's attitude problem and 
begins to justify himself in the situation. He says, oh, those animals. Well, well, listen, we were planning on offering them as a thanks offering. We, we, were gonna, we were gonna take care of that, which seems like a pious enough response. But, but what lies underneath this is the reality that in a thanks offering, the people get to eat the proceeds that are left over. They get to benefit from the meat of the sacrifice. The reality is, is God has already called for a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice of total destruction that the people aren't to benefit from this sacrifice. God is to receive the whole thing. No plunder was to be left. But we see in our text that Saul and the people kept the tastiest plunder for themselves. But it doesn't keep Saul from doubling down. He says, listen, I did what the Lord commanded. It was the people that took the spoils. We reminds us of a previous situation between Saul and the prophet. Blaming the people seems to be a bit of a pattern here at this point. But then notice verse 21. He says, we were going to sacrifice to your God. Notice it's no longer my God. It's no longer our God. We're going to sacrifice to your God, Samuel. We're going to placate your, your God. It's going to be fine. We find here that Saul had no desire to give a pleasing offering to his God. At best, maybe wanting to placate Samuel's God while he enjoyed the spoils himself. And with full knowledge that Saul has no desire for true sacrifice, Samuel responds, with this reply that is, is pretty familiar. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel here is not undermining the necessity or importance of sacrifice. I mean, after all, he, he's operating as a priest in many ways, but, but he's noting that empty religious ceremony without obedience gets you nowhere before God. And you can have the trappings of outward devotion, but, but disobedience and lack of ownership of that disobedience reveals a heart that is far from God. Same kind of thing that Jesus will go on to accuse the Pharisees of. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We find here that, that partial obedience to God is as utter disobedience. According to Samuel, partial obedience is rebellion. A rebellion in line with divination or, or fortune telling. Interestingly enough, Saul will later give himself to that as well. But the reason that divination is so bad and that it is connected to partial obedience is that it reveals a lack of trust for God's providential care. Let me explain that a bit. Partial obedience reveals the fact that we don't trust God to provide if we are fully obedient, especially when full obedience seems costly. Samuel will also say that Saul's presumption is as idolatry that Saul presuming that partial obedience was good enough 
is as if he had given himself to idol worship. How is that? Because when we presume that partial obedience is enough, we have trusted the voice of another God. Oftentimes we've trusted our own voice and how often do we make ourselves out to be God? In Saul's case, we find out that the people in this case have become his God. He'll go on in his half-hearted confession to say, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. And he speaks rightly here, according to Samuel, although we'll find that it's not true repentance. As Jesus says, how foolish it is to fear those who can kill the body, but not those, but not that one that kills the soul. I mean, how, how, how often do we fear man more than we fear God? The temptation is in us from our youth. Peer pressure starts getting at us at a very young age. Remember some of the most horrible decisions I have made was because I feared my friends more than I feared God. And I wish I could say we grew out of it. The reality is we don't. I mean, what motivates our important decisions in life? Is it the fear of God and obedience to his voice? Or is our direction in life so often swayed by the thoughts and opinions of others and how they will look at us? I honestly have a hard time passing judgment against Saul here. It resonates with me in so many ways. I just see myself. But as our passage shows that this kind of idolatry fearing others instead of fearing God will lead to our demise as it leads to Saul's demise. And we find this declaration of his demise right here in our text. As, as Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs hold of the corner of his garment and it tears. It seems like maybe this robe was poorly made, but I, I think more is going on there. If you look back at the law, the Jews were called to attach these tassels to the corner of their garments. And these tassels were to be a reminder of God's voice, a reminder of his commandments. As, as Numbers says, a reminder not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after, the scripture tells us. And here in this dramatic scene, Saul is holding on to the very reminder of God's voice. While Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul does repent, kinda. <laughs> Although we find that even that is an effort to save face in front of the people and the elders of Israel. Verse 30 says, I have sinned yet honor me. <laughs> Make me look all right in this situation before the elders of Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God, that I might continue this facade of empty religion. Can you at least pretend that I'm forgiven in front of the other people? I mean, that's really what seems to matter to Saul. Satisfied with partial obedience, satisfied with partial repentance, which of course is no obedience at all. 
which of course is no repentance at all. And so we find in a no less troubling scene that concludes our chapter, Saul or Samuel must come and finish this work of holy war. And he comes to Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who seems as unaware as Saul. And he says to Samuel, surely the bitterness of death has passed as if to say, I'm glad that uncomfortable situation is over. Maybe we can grab a drink or something. And Samuel looks at him and says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel slays Agag with the sword at Gilgal. The language here is shocking, but it's also very sacrificial. What's going on here, this cutting up of Agag as a sacrifice. And this location that has been a place of sacrifice throughout our narrative so far as we've studied this book, this place at the border of the promised land. And here the king of Agag is devoted to destruction as a sacrificial offering to God. And the passage ends, says Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So finally this morning, I wanna consider together a God who regrets. Well, as you've noticed twice in our passage, we find this declaration that God regretted making Saul king over Israel. And then to make matters quite a bit more difficult in the middle of the passage, it says that God does not regret, <laughs> that he's incapable of regretting because he is not a man that he should regret. So, so what exactly do we do with this? Well, some commentators have surmised that uh, this is Samuel's opinion and not a very good one, uh, that perhaps this is just poor editing by the job of whoever compiled uh, the book of Samuel. Um, I don't think those are the best options. Um, others who have been a bit more careful, and I think rightly so, have shown this as an instance of anthropomorphism. That, that is to say that uh, we often use human characteristics and language to uh, explain the characteristics of God, and oftentimes our language falls short. But the one issue I have with that is I think we can make claims like that, oh, this is just anthropomorphic language, and it just takes away the real tension that I think our text wants us to appreciate. On the one hand, God is not like man. He does not regret in the way that we regret. When we regret something, it's because we have made a decision, not knowing what the outcome will be, and, and that situation goes poorly and we regret having made that decision. Or perhaps we made a decision out of sinfulness or lust and we go on to regret doing something. But of course, that's not how God works. He knows all and he is fully holy. That type of regret is not possible for God. And so the text rightly speaks of God not regretting as man. But I think this passage also calls us to understand the very true hatred and sadness that God has for sin. There's one other place in the scriptures that this language of regret is used concerning God. And it's in Genesis six, where it says that God regretted creating mankind because of how sinful they had become on the earth. 
He regretted this humanity that had turned from their creator, that had given themselves to idolatry and wickedness. And here in our passage today, God regrets making Saul king because he had given himself over to idolatry, according to Samuel, that he had become wicked, that he had turned his back on his creator. And according to our text, God regrets that. That saddens God. So what does this all mean for us? What is the reality of holy war and God's regret concerning sin and one king who turns his back on God and another king who is sacrificed at Gilgal? What what does this all have to do with us here today? Well, I would argue very much indeed. You see, the problem of unholiness does not end here. The problem of unholiness, both in Israel's enemies and in Israel themselves, will continue and play out as we will find. It turns out even with the best of intentions, it is very difficult to make yourself holy, especially as we'll find out when the intentions are not the best. And we'll find this coming up over and over again. And and truly the best option for God, if it were me, would be to do the thing that he first did when he regretted the sinfulness of mankind is just wipe them out, truly wage holy war on creation, which is what the flood is. But as we've seen just this week, even with as much rain as we have, we're reminded with the rainbow that God has promised not to do that again. but he will preserve this earth until his son's second coming. And so God, who is rich in mercy, as our passage tells us, sends one that is better than Saul. Certainly David is in view here and we'll learn more about him in the coming weeks, but, but ultimately the one who comes in David's line, God's only son, Jesus, the one who is righteous, the one who is perfectly obedient as our passage in Hebrews said this morning, the one who says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And in place of the holy war that would rightly fall on each one of us, God devotes his own son to destruction. We find in our passage that Saul and his kingdom are swept away like a baptismal flood and rightly so. What we find as the scripture unfolds that Jesus, though undeserving, was swept away in his own baptism, this own flood on our behalf. We find in our passage, Agag, this king who is sacrificed on the altar of God at the border of the promised land, and rightly so. But we will also find one, Jesus the righteous, who though undeserving was sacrificed on a cruciform altar on our behalf, and there becomes our entrance into the promised land. God in full knowledge that humanity could never produce the holiness needed, that we could never be obedient enough, sent his own son into the world to be obedient for us. And as Hebrews 10 says, that by his blood cleanses us, he devotes all that is in us that is unholy to destruction. He he buries us in Christ's baptism and raises us to newness of life.
And still the question remains, would God ever regret this? Might he ever regret saving me? I think verses 28 and 29 give us an answer. Look with me. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. St. Augustine comments on these verses saying that the reason that this is written is that we may look to the race of David whence has also sprung according to the flesh, the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And the Lord will not regret the decision to bring a better king than Saul. And he tells us this, he will not regret giving this kingdom to David of whom Jesus will come. He will never regret establishing his kingdom on the life, death, and resurrection of his one and only who was born in the line of King David. His kingdom is established on Jesus. And, and would God ever turn his back on his son? Well, he does. So that he would never have to turn his back on you. And you can know that God will not regret bringing you into his kingdom because all that he might regret in you has already been taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can know that when he does come to wage war against the unholiness in this world, to bring about rest from our enemies, that we will be found in him because of what Jesus has done. Because of the cross of Christ, Jesus has, or God has already waged holy war on your sin. And you are dead to sin. We know this to be true because Christ Jesus raised from the dead. And because you look to him in faith this day, you can know that he will look on you with eyes of mercy in that last day. Not because you are faithful, but because he who calls is faithful. And our faithful God will by no means regret what he has done for you and his son, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.